0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hey, Murder Bookies! Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you appreciating us. So please, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. That's Murder Shelf Book Club or email at Jill and Terra at murdershelfbookclub.com. And if you're able to leave us a five-star review, especially on Apple Podcasts, please do it as it will keep us tracking along and move us up in the charts so we can keep on delivering stellar content to you. And today, forgive us if the audio is a bit funky, we're definitely under quarantine and we're doing our best to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Where we have always been able to record together, today is not that day. So stay safe, stay healthy, and practice social distancing by listening to us, as well as your other favorite podcasts. Now, on with the show.
0: Everybody, this is our second cast where we pull on those wayward threads that we didn't get to fully discuss in the first episodes of our series. Before we get to our discussion, we have a little update for you regarding the subject of our very first series, The Golden State Killer. We also have some fun fan theories from our series on Lizzie Borden that we'd love to share with you. And once we get to the meat of the episode, we'll be diving into the Jane Doe's that we believe Wayne Nance was responsible for. And, of course, the Satanic panic. Satan was running rampant in more ways than one in Missoula, Montana. <laughs> when Wayne was operating, and certainly influenced by the devil in more than one way.
1: First, we have some housekeeping, if you will. We received a wonderful review from our friends over at Life Wine Podcast. Stephanie said, it's my new addiction. Well, if that doesn't feel great, I don't know what does. Because Lifeline is a new favorite of mine and a good way to unwind. She goes on to say, Jill and Tara combine all my favorite things, true crime, psychology, books, wine, food, and humor. How do they pack it all into one podcast? These ladies are not only funny and smart, they are an inspiration, and I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Listen and subscribe. You will not regret it. Thank you, Life Wine Podcast. We certainly do appreciate it. I also recommend this one highly if you haven't listened already. So after you finish up our episode, go take a listen to them. They love wine, they watch Lifetime, and they just shoot the shit. Stephanie and Rachel are awesome as your co-hosts, and Zach, their audio engineer, slides in as the king of the segue and provides additional context, even as a non-viewer of the movie. Just like with us, if you don't watch the movie, it's okay. This threesome covers it for you. So listen to them on your favorite podcasting platform today. You'll be sure to be entertained.
0: I think I just love them.
1: Yeah, they're <laughs> great. I <I'm> like <laughs> probably almost (laughs) feed my pants a few times per episode that I've listened to, so awesome! definitely recommend them. And now uh, we definitely have your Golden State Killer update. We're supposed to receive our next update on May 12th, 2020. However, Paige St. John of the Man in the Window podcast and the LA Times, amongst many other news outlets, dropped some juicy news on March 3rd, 2020, when they actually received an update. This scumbag, turd, whatever you want to call him, Joseph D'Angelo, would like to make a deal. Oh, He'll plead he guilty. he <laughs> guilty as long as the death penalty is off the table. Many of the victims believe the outcome of avoiding a long, drawn-out trial would be okay, but they do want answers. Like, where was he? What was he doing? How was he doing it? Like, how did he get away with it as a police officer? while he doesn't deserve a plea, his victims and their family members deserve justice. And this is precisely why we leave the death penalty on the table. Hell yeah. And not going for a touring. Go back and listen to episode two of our podcast, where we discuss just this, in addition to parallels of Michelle McNamara's description of the Golden State Killer and I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and how it compares to Joseph James D'Angelo. One can only hope that if he does plead guilty and avoids a trial, he'll have a hard time holding on to the show in the shower and get what he deserves.
0: And we had a couple theories on episodes 3 through 5 on who killed Andrew and Abby Borden. David Wolfe said that he used to think that Lizzie Borden didn't do it, rather that she had allowed someone else access to do the deed. And David wrote, However, I now think she may have done it. She gave a foreshadowing to her friend the night before, indicating her fear that, quote, someone would harm her father. Then she burnt the dress a few days later after the murders, saying that the dress had paint on it from a recent house painting. She also left bloody towels in the basement bucket, possibly from her period, and the maid Bridget suggested that she didn't see the bloody rags before the murder, otherwise she would have cleaned them. Now Lizzie tried to have the maid leave the premises the day of the murders, suggesting she go to the store that was having that sale. She told the police that her stepmother had received a note requesting she visit a sick friend, which was never located, nor was the sick friend. The crime evidence will make you waver. However, I think all signs point to Lizzie, and I wonder if she was abused and had just hit the breaking point. We'll never know such an interesting case. Now, that's what David thinks happened. Another murder bookie, Karen Dowden, said, who I've spoke with, and she has an incredible amount of Lizzie information. She is a walking Lizzypedia. Karen th- Karen theorizes that she's learned from countless books over the last 45 years. 45 years? 45 years she's been into this. Like I said Lizzypedia. Oh, yeah. Eli Benz recognized Lizzie by sight when she visited the store to buy poison. And then he went to her house later with the police to listen to her voice. So it was both an auditory and a visual ID. So what does that all mean? So Karen said she thinks that she's virtually had the sole opportunity in what amounts to an hour and a half window starting at 9 a.m. in a very secure house with obstacles in the form of both locked interior and exterior doors and an oddly clumsy floor plan. She's been to the Lizzie Borden house a dozen times and slept over twice. Listen, she knows her stuff. Right. So it would be hard to gain access to kill the Bordens unless you were an insider. Karen believes that Lizzie was either the murderer or an accomplice covering up them for the murderer. There's no doubt in her mind that she is guilty. She knows women who are capable of murderous anger. So here are two very, very different theories from my own. And Karen, you need to watch those angry women. Great theories, murder bookies. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Keep sending those comments in. And you may become part of our episode too. So now, let's dive into Chrissy Crystal Creek and Debbie Deer Creek, uh, who is also known as Robin.
1: So, originally, To Kill and Kill Again by John Coston was published in 1992. So, he didn't have the chance to acknowledge what we learned of Debbie Deer Creek's true identity in 2006. We know Larry Weatherman cares about these victims, and after 21 years of not knowing, his hard work and determination finally paid off. Debbie Deer Creek was identified as a young woman named Marcella Sherry Marcy, in quotes, Bachman, so Marcy was her nickname. Her brother, Derek Bachman, had been searching for Marcy since he was 21 years old, along with a private investigator. He originally believed that she may have supported herself as a prostitute while away from home and may have actually been a victim of Gary Ridgway. So for you true crime fans out there, you'll know Gary Ridgway as the Green River Killer who murdered at least 49 runaway children and prostitutes during the 1980s and 1990s in the Seattle-Tacoma area of Washington. And that's one of the hotbeds of serial killer activity. He, Ted Bundy, however many other people are up there. But Marcela was never identified as one of those victims. And the same would be said for Devon and Nelson, the Beaverdale Hill Girl, whom we touched on in our first episode of the series. Weatherman knew that she probably wasn't one of Ridgway's victims, but submitted her DNA to the task force anyways in hopes of identifying her. For many reasons, this case went cold. After Bachman was reported missing, there was a possible sighting of her in March of 1986 near Seattle. Her name was removed from the National Crime Information Center because she was said to be, quote-unquote, found. And also, while Marcy had perfect teeth, she had no cavities, no fillings, nothing out of the ordinary to really go on to determine her individuality. In 2005, Detective Raphael Crenshaw of the Green River Task Force pulled a file from their missing and unsolved shelf of the Seattle area in Dovin, and it just happened to be Marcy Bachman's file. After collecting DNA samples from Marcy's family, Crenshaw sent the samples down to the University of Texas to have them examined. Through DNA profiling, a DNA match confirmed that Marcy was Debbie Deer Creek, or who we know as Robin, Wayne Nance's summer live-in girlfriend in the summer of 1984. Although now retired and one of his Jane Doe's identified, Larry Weatherman said he would continue to work to identify two other unsolved homicides in the Missoula area, one an unidentified male and, of course, Chrissy Crystal Creek.
0: Yeah, great job on figuring that one out.
1: He was definitely determined not to leave any unsolved on his list while he was working for the Missoula Law
0: Enforcement. Yep, yeah, that kind of determination is admirable, boy. All right, John Costin refers to our second Jane Doe as Chrissy Crystal Creek, but further accounts call her Christy. So from recent articles, since she's been referred to as Christy, that's what we're going to go on from this point on, just to be respectful to this poor woman who is an alleged victim of Wayne Nance. We're not really going to know for sure because Wayne was killed before we could get any kind of confessions from him. So the skeletal remains of a woman were found on September 9, 1985, when she was discovered by a bear hunter outside Mozilla, Montana, near Crystal Creek. Police Captain Larry Weatherman, Lieutenant Jerry Crago, and Detective Tom Woods conducted a grid survey excavation of the area, and it appeared that the body had been dumped into the headwaters of the creek and there was no attempt at burial made shot twice the woman had been killed by a 9 millimeter a 38 or a 357 caliber bolt to the right rear of her head and a second entrance hole being at the top forehead of the skull and that was most likely a 44 or a 45 caliber weapon both wounds were entrance wounds later a 9 millimeter bullet was recovered from a clump of dirt lodged in the skull during an x-ray, a second bullet was located in the skull. Now, I deduced that this is another 9mm, as the forensic anthropologist essay by Sidney Winbrow did not say otherwise, and I read the whole whole, whole piece, <laughs> all 70-80 pages of it, and I think she would have said so if um, if it had been. This information on the bullets came to Sidney Winbrow from Captain Weatherman himself. Now, I have read endless numbers of articles over the internet that says it was a 22 caliber, and that is incorrect. So I'm setting the record straight here. It may make a difference. This murder would have taken place between 1983 and 1985. And again, as we said, the identity of Christy Crystal Creek remains unknown.
1: I'm glad you've read so many articles just to clear that up because I know a lot of things that I've read were a 22 caliber, and I can't remember if Kostin said anything differently, but I think those two were at least aligned and everything else was incorrect.
0: Well, I think the story gets written and then it gets repeated, just like we do. We did research, we read articles, we read stories, and I stumbled onto the forensic anthropology thesis for her master's, and she talked to Weatherman. So I think that's going to be accurate when you go to the primary source yourself, as Uh opposed to reading second-hand, third-hand sources on the internet. So, use those primary sources. History teacher here, go to the primary <laughs> documents.
1: <you laughs> and know. I don't think Weatherman would be one to uh, Forget. give inaccurate
0: information. <laughs> oh, no way. Not, not for somebody's master thesis. No way. All right. So, anyway, from this extensive research, I also listened to the Montana Murder Mysteries podcast, and I have learned everything that I could possibly glean about this unidentified person. And I'm really hoping it's going to sound familiar to somebody out there, even after, you know, 40 odd years. From this forensic anthropology analysis of her remains, we know that Christy Crystal Creek was between 22 and 34 years of age. Stood approximately 4 foot 8 to 5 feet in height. Weighed approximately 90 to 100 pounds. So we're talking a little tiny Person here.
1: She is a very tiny person.
0: Yes. And for those using the metric system, this is 1.5 meters in height, 43 kilograms in weight for our global audience out there. She had dark brown hair, approximately six inches long, relatively thin, with a moderate curl to it. And it was more consistent with the hair of people descended from Europeans. Now, from her skeletal remains, it looks like she is a mix of Southern Japanese or Korean ancestry. Mixed with some Caucasian heritage, 4DISC 2.0 is an interactive DOS computer program that uses discriminant function analysis of skeletal remains to classify unknown human remains. That's a quote, because I really don't know what that means. <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> it just, it just, <laughs> they just, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah, they, they gather the data, they stick it in, the algorithm spits out what's most likely mm-hmm. I'm gathering. So anyway, data collected from this four-disc data program concluded that she's partly Japanese. Now, from teeth, you can figure out a lot as well. First, she had a lot of dental work that is not done in Europe or in the Americas, but is commonly done in Asia. We're talking the techniques themselves. Now, this is in line with the determination of her heritage, and that she's probably spent some time in East Asia. She had had two root canals done previously. And in the last year of her life, she had her lower right third molar removed, as well as another wisdom tooth. Using what they can find out. Oh, it really is. She had some cavities, though, and so it indicated that she wasn't able to care for her teeth that last year, like she had done so previously. So something had gone on in this last year of this poor woman's life. Stains on the right side of her mouth indicated she was a smoker, and so she wasn't having regular cleanings either. This is someone who had extensive dental care fillings, was at the dentist a lot, Uh except that last year before she was murdered. So what happened there? Does this ring a bell for anybody who knew someone who went missing? She was also right-handed, and this is based on the development of her right hand and shoulder bones. So there's speculation that she may have been a waitress. From her spine, we learn she may have broken her tailbone, which again may have affected her pain-wise, possibly how she sat. From the shape of her pelvis, we know she gave birth to at least one child. So she has a child, a son or daughter out there. She has family. There's somebody. Again, from Montana Murder Mysteries, Angela Marshall, who's the host, we get the idea that she was possibly a war bride who married a U.S. serviceman when he was stationed in Japan or South Korea. And if this even sounds remotely like someone you lost 35 or 40 years ago, someone you heard of that went missing, please contact Crime Stoppers if this resonates at all with you and you think you might know something. You can call the Missoula or Mineral Counties at 406-721-4444, in Ravalli County, 406-363-0062. Please, the slightest pinging of a vague memory, that could be the key to identifying Chrissy Crystal Creek.
1: So two words, satanic panic. (gasps) Gives me chills just thinking about it, especially right now with all this coronavirus things going on, uh, hysteria, panic about toilet paper. But you all know the original American satanic panic, the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. You haven't? go re-up on it, because we're not going to talk about it here.
0: Cause, nope, uh, really? I can <laughs> no, I I talk don't about it for 12 hours. Maybe it'd one of these be, days, maybe?
1: It'd be way too much. Oh. Maybe we can focus on that, because I mean, technically it counts as true crime, right?
0: To me it does.
1: Yeah, we can definitely uh look we'll find do that it. in a later episode if anyone's interested.
0: We'll find a book. A Halloween episode. <laughs> it'd be so much fun. the
1: murder shelf. Uh, We're going to dive into the satanic panic of the 1980s and the 1990s as it relates to Wayne Nance and touch on a few other things. It was a moral panic that set in over allegations of satanic ritual abuse, which caused mass hysteria in the United States and even around the world. And the best part is, it still, even to this day, doesn't make any sense.
0: No, none. No. So we're going to
1: begin in the late 1960s, early 1970s with the rise of occultism and Satanism. So by 1974, with the murders of Siobhan McGinnis and Donna Pounds, the devil was everywhere, even in Missoula, Montana. And you may recall from episode six, Donna Pounds' husband, Harvey, the minister, was telling everyone that a satanic cult was somehow involved with his wife's murder. He scared the bejesus out of his congregants because somebody had definitely murdered Donna. And this wasn't just extreme religious doctrine. 1969 saw the publication of The Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, who was the former lion tamer and speaker on the occult. From our research, we learned that his Bible-infused occult ideas, black magic, secular philosophy, and anti-Christian ritual and to essays stressed human self-determination in the face of an indifferent universe. And while these were mostly other people's ideas about self-actualization and self-empowerment, LaVey made Satanism a thing, so it was cool. This book would become the key tome in the Church of Satan, founded in 1966, just like the Bible is to Christianity. So LaVey, he's born in Chicago, raised in California, and he was a natural-born musician. He learned about superstitions from his Eastern European grandmother, reading Dracula and Frankenstein. And growing up, Anton wasn't one to fit in with the jocks or the cool kids. He was more of an ostentatious loner, much like Wayne Nance. He dropped out, wound up working in the circus and carnivals. Like and, you do. Yeah, like you do. <laughs> it it happened. His <laughs> interest in hypnosis and his ability to con people out of their money helped him move up the ladder, and soon he was training animals. Remember, he's a lion tamer. Once the carnival season was over, LeVay worked in burlesque houses. And here's our fun fact for you. Anton LeVay actually had an affair with the then-unknown Marilyn Monroe, who he called Norma Jean, or so it's said.
0: Oh, my God. What the (laughs) devil got into her? (laughs) Don't. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) I had to. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: And then during the 1950s, he became a psychic investigator looking into the nut calls that law enforcement would send him. And by the 1960s, he was into the occult, throwing these great parties, became a local celebrity who played the organ of all things, and had a pet lion. So he's in L.A. He's one of the cool kids now, and having these massive parties with celebrities showing up. And then one of his followers suggested that his philosophy on life would actually be a good foundation for a new religion. And after some debate and discussion, Levay decided to found it.
0: Because why not?
1: Yeah, and just throw sure. them out there into the world today, every day.
0: Yeah. So on April 30th, 1966, the group formalized their association, and the Church of Satan was born. 1966 being Anno Santamis. Oh, yes. Yes, the first year. From then on, Levey would be known as the Black Pope, because we don't need to be too controversial or anything. No. no. They did become more formal and more structured using rituals, theatrics, costuming, music to heighten the experience. The church did begin to recruit. And, irony of all ironies, there was a very short lived Topless Witch Review, a nightclub show that featured Susan Atkins, who would later become a member of the Charles Manson family.
1: Oh, great. Yeah.
0: Good time. An interviewer asked LeVay about his Bible and asked, You say you hate your enemies with your whole heart. If a man smites you on one cheek, smash him on the other. Do you really believe this? And LeVay said, Yes, very much so. I think everyone does, except they cloak in forms of false altruism or false morality. They feel that there's so much repressed aggression and repressed hostility that it's never fully allowed to manifest itself because of teachings such as turn the other cheek. And that has made man intrinsically a vicious creature because he's bottled up all these feelings or he channels them into what would or appears to be innocuous direction, which is much more harmful. So I think some of our serial killers may be unlocking their inner Satanism. But
1: he never know. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's not really about
0: the devil. No, express those inner aggressive feelings. Don't turn the other cheek, just smash them. Yeah. So you see, anyway, LeVay is promoting unleashing aggression rather than encouraging self control. And it seems that Satanism is less about Satan and far more about atheism and existentialism. Just saying. Uh, the Complete Witch was published in 1971 as a companion to the Satanic Bible. <laughs> And LeVay would continue to write, be a showman, and to be controversial. He lived until 1997, where he died of a pulmonary edema at the age of 67. And the church continues.
1: I want to throw this little nugget of uh, a theory that I heard, only because I'm not the, the biggest fan of Taylor Swift, but it made me chuckle. Apparently his daughter, I forget what her name was, but apparently there's something going around where She's actually Taylor Swift now, and she, due to her belief in Satanism, she's been able to maintain the same age over the course of time. Really? It is actually Taylor Swift, yes. They, like... they look remarkably alike from pictures that you see of her as a, a young girl, so. I don't know. Or cloned or something like that. I don't
0: know. She what should there's... bottle that spell. She'd make quite a bit of one.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: There you
1: go. In addition to the publishing of LaVey's book, another cult philosophy was playing out before our eyes during that time, and that was Helter Skelter. Charles Manson's family would go on to murder Sharon Tate in her home, along with four others, on August 8th, 1969, followed by the murders of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca the next day, August 9th. The string of serial murders, including a few others earlier in the summer carried out by the Manson cult, absolutely traumatized the nation. The ritualistic nature of the crime scene left its indelible mark on the collective public. Christian fundamentalists would also have you believe that Satanists and devil worshippers had infiltrated Hollywood, slowly poisoning the minds of our youth. William Peter Blatley's book, The Exorcist, was published in 1971 and was released in theaters in 1973, further giving rise to the idea of teenage demonic possession.
0: Oh, I vaguely remember this, but that film, The Exorcist, geared people to death. I can remember people talking about it in hushed voices, holding themselves, saying the exorcism, making the sign of the cross. I mean, I wasn't, seriously, I wasn't allowed to hear them talk about it, so I had to, like, sneak down the hall as a little kid and kind of hover to eavesdrop. I mean, it really, really shook them up. You know, today it looks like, oh, it's just another, you know, demon possession film. But let me tell you, back in the 70s, it was the only demon possession film.
1: Yeah, there's so many out there today, and I know I just happened to catch the last 45 minutes, half hour of The Exorcist about a week or two ago, <laughs> of course, while we're going through this whole episode, and it just made me laugh, because obviously special effects and everything are not what they were back then, they're a lot better now, but it's still one of those things that just kind of scares the crap out of you, especially with what they were working with at that time.
0: Yeah, well, and that it was a little girl, yes, 12-year-old a 12-year-old, that was going through this. Your child
1: is now the devil. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, A a memoir entitled Satan Cellar was released in 1972 by Mike Warnke, an evangelical comedian who claimed to be a high priest in the Church of Satan and carried out ritualistic murder, taking part in orgies and other magical rites. The memoir was uh, eventually debunked by Cornerstone, which was a Christian publication in the early 90s, but nearly 20 years after it instilled panic into the hearts of millions. The rise of Satanism also grew alongside the golden age of serial killers. So in the 1970s, with the likes of the Zodiac Killer and the Alphabet Killer, who both used patterns and symbols to associate themselves with their murders. There's also Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Golden State Killer, Ed Kemper, the Hillside Stranglers, only, I mean, that's a few. There's so many more. So panic and fear were definitely rising. America is no longer safe, and you were no longer safe in your own neighborhood. Darkness was afoot, and it came in many shapes and sizes.
0: I think you can see why people might be thinking that murder, mayhem is rising, anti-everything is ending. You know, when cultures begin to change rapidly, it's frightening. And it gives people that sense of walking on eggshells all the time, that insecurity. And there's dozens of theories on why society changes And some include the advent of new technology and the environment shifting, war, economic upheaval, new ideas. Remember, at this time, Vietnam is ongoing and then slowly ending. The Cold War is still raging. You have stagflation upsetting the economy. People are questioning government institutions in the aftermath of Watergate, civil rights, women's liberation. Oh, my God. And the birth control pill is leading women into having sex outside marriage. Living together, oh. girls going and living in apartments by themselves was bad enough, but now couples are starting to, oh my God, live in sin together. <laughs> you know, things are, we laugh today, we do, but then it, it is mind-blowing. Oh, it,
1: it was very serious back then. It definitely
0: was not the norm, and especially... Oh, it was unthinkable. When, um during the uh,
1: 50s, how we came into the 70s with all the social norms where you weren't allowed to do any of that. No, of course not. I mean,
0: people would would move in with their boyfriends or girlfriends and hide the fat. And when parents would come visit, they would put all the boyfriend's clothes in the trunk and put them in the back of the car, and and take all the razor blades out of the bathroom. I mean, it was crazy. But this was like huge social taboos. And on top of all these changes, throw in some Satanism. <laughs> I mean, a yeah. I oh my God, we're, people's we're minds here. were completely blown. I mean, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> all right. So now with all of this happening, you have murders going on in Mozilla. The townspeople are scared. And when people are scared, they talk, they speculate, they wonder, which, you know, increases the fears. Now, months before the murders of Siobhan McGinnis and Donna Pounds, there was a newly married couple who disappeared from Rathdrum in northeast Idaho, and it was believed that they were sacrificed in a satanic cult ritual. Combined with the missing couple in the west and cow mutilations in the east, where their udders, lips, and genitals had been removed with a surgical precision, the people of Montana, particularly Missoula, are thinking that a satanic cult is practicing in the area. And there's also aliens. Sure! Something's going on, and it's scary, and they don't like it. And there's news reports of additional unsolved murders and disappearance in another part of Montana that is fueling all of this public paranoia. Now, Costin describes the McGinnis Girl as being phase one of a, quote, diabolical, satanic triad. Whoever the killer was, he had to kill a virgin, a Christian, and a betrayer. End quote in that particular order. So if Siobhan was the virgin, then Donna Pounds must be the Christian, ushering in phase two of the satanic triad. Who's going to be the third? The rumor mill spins wildly. A book had been found in the trash bin by the Pounds house that detailed the ritualistic nature of Donna's murder. Those ropes that were found tied to the bedposts, Those stood for the nooses used to hang convicted witches in the Salem Witch Trials. The original American satanic panic. Then there was even the sign of the devil painted downstairs in the basement in Donna's blood. Not to mention archaic symbols that had been etched into her body. Oh my god! God. Obviously, none of this is true. (laughs) And Sheriff John (laughs) Moe knew better. And so did Harvey Pound's Don, his husband, the minister. Don and Harvey belonged to this Bethel Baptist church where Harvey stood as a deacon, and he also became a DJ. Yes, a jockey <laughs> for a local Christian channel, which he used a soapbox to preach against the rise of Satanism and the occult. Was Satan marshalling his forces for the inevitable confrontation? Yes, Harvey was promoting this fear, and it's going to gain him a lot of listeners. Yup, that's what fear does. It does. So, Sheriff Mo was not about to believe that due to Harvey's preaching on a radio program, that a satanic cult would be out to get him or his wife. Remember, Harvey didn't make it easy for the police, nor was he trying to keep the rumors at bay. He's actually adding fuel to the fire. Harvey was the one to find his wife's body, and he knew. He didn't see anything remotely related to Satanism or a ritualistic killing. But that didn't stop him from saying the ropes were laying about the body in the form of a peace symbol. No, any ropes near Donna's body were the result of her having been tied to the bed when she was first attacked. And those ropes unceremoniously led her down into the basement where she was ultimately killed. Most of the Christian fundamentalist community believed that anything having to do with the occult, even astrology, fell under the provocative realm of the powers of darkness. Ooh, I know. Congregations were even shown films such as Satan on the Loose to educate them on what to look out for, as if they would see a bunch of devil worshippers dancing in a trance-like frenzy about the town. Which is exactly what the movie portrayed. I can
1: just picture this right now. It's yeah. like people oh. going out to get all the toilet paper, just dancing around in a frenzy.
0: Putting the toilet paper on fire is a, mm-hmm. a, a very holy, sacred sacrifice, because toilet paper's so sacred <laughs> right now. They're on a holy mission to stop the renaissance of Satanism. And Christian fundamentalist preachers like Harvey Pounds were gaining prominence around the country. That's what's happening.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And meanwhile... So we'll take it back to Wayne a little bit. Wayne's classmates, they felt this darkness growing within him, and it was starting to scare them a little bit. But yet, he started to bore them when the stories he would tell, they would always end the same way. The dark side inevitably won. It was tiresome now. It was just because Wayne always allowed the monster, the force of evil, to win, and they were getting sick of it. There was never any different spin, never any other different ending. And however senior year that all changed, he told Bill Van Canaghan that he had been ordained a third-degree witch, but his ultimate goal was to become a warlock, moving up in the ranks of the coven in which he was an initiate. What Bill didn't know, and Costin's quick to point out, I'm really convinced that Costin hates wanting the answer the passion, oh, yeah. which I absolutely love when reading the book, but he's quick to point out that most people who practice witchcraft or Wicca usually don't speak of the fact that they are Wiccan or practice magic. There actually is such a thing as a third-degree which, however, and that's the highest station in a coven that can be reached, usually a high priest or priestess. Wayne was just a goof, and he's borrowing whatever happened to suit the needs of the goofy mosaic of his maturing personality. And that was a quote from Costin. However, his interest wasn't necessarily unusual, as many students at the local high schools, Hellgate and Sentinel, had copies of The Exorcist in their bags. They used Ouija boards and tarot cards at sleepovers and had conversations turning to magic and spells. It should be pointed out that Satanism and Wicca are definitely not the same thing, not even close. But however, back then, this distinction was non-existent, which is Warlock Satanists. All of these weirdos were to be feared in 1970s Missoula. However, we know that the sharp distinction between the two definitely does exist.
0: It's very true. Yep.
1: And now you've heard this before, the day after the murder of Donna Pounds, Bill Van Cannagan saw Wayne sitting in the stairwell. Wayne said to Bill, it's been done. He said again, this time turning to show Bill the five-pointed star, the pentagram that he had etched into his skin. It was still bleeding and appeared to be somewhat infected. It was a sickening moment of truth, and this is a quote, a sudden synthesis of all Wayne's nonsensical threats about killing someone before his 19th birthday so he could join some cult which was part and parcel of all his bullshit black magic stuff and his obsession with what he called the dark side. For Bill, it all merged at once into something that was utterly fantastic, but absolutely real. He could see it clear as day. Wayne killed Donna Pounds, and it just told him so. Suddenly, there came a high-pitched laugh. It was hysterical, eerie, a Banshee's cry that filled the stairwell. Wayne seemed crazed, and Bill rocked back on his heels and ran down the hall. I would, too. <laughs> yeah, that would have been like yeah. the creepiest thing I've ever seen. And I yeah. mean, I don't think anyone's ever etched something into their skin and showed it to me and kind of referred to them being a murderer. But we know yeah. belief is uh, an absolute strange and wonderful thing. And according to Levay's Satanic Bible, those looking to follow Satan were inspired to receive a mark of any kind. So a pentagram seemed perfect for a new initiate, especially if uh, that's what Wayne was reading. And Stan Fullerton, a classmate of Wayne's who saw the pentagram too, Wayne said, you know, I was playing around with my knife, and I put this in my arm. Like, oh, yeah, slipped. Another senior, Kim Brigman, who had known Wayne since the third grade, heard something different. He had taken a piece of wire and crafted it into the shape of a pentagram, rendering it hot enough to brand himself with that mark. And no one, though, having seen this on his arm, would make made the same connections as Bill did, though.
0: Whew! That's charming, child. Yeah. Ooh. So, John Costin dedicates some pages to a bona fide case of mass hysteria that ripped through Missoula and was brought to the attention of the University of Montana sociology professor Robert W. Balk and his grad student Margaret Gilliam. The rumors of the satanic cult fit perfectly in what Bach was teaching in the fall of 1974 a class on collective behavior with a focus on rumor construction and dissemination. So, lo and behold, there was also a focus on devil worship. Woo! perfectly with perfect, the Perfect, right? All signs focus. I want to take that class. <laughs> I actually would, too. <laughs> the, the events in and around Missoula were a perfect conduit for the formulation of study around rumor creation and its spread. And the rumors surrounding Donna Pound's murder and all that led to it and the ties to the occult began spreading quickly within days of her murder. However, while most of the rumors died down because there was no factual basis, new rumors began popping up surrounding Donna's death. And this became a worthy thesis topic for Gilliam, who co-authored a paper with Professor Balch, Devil Worship in Western Montana, a Case Study in Rumor Construction. In the paper, they describe a case of consensual validation. An idea develops its validity simply because everybody seems to believe it, despite the absence of hard facts. Now, in order to prove their thesis, Gilliam and Balch collected data by speaking to journalists, law enforcement, teachers, clergy, members of the occult community, in addition to sending a validated 13-page questionnaire to a combined 485 students at Hellgate, Sentinel High, and Missoula University. And they didn't stop there. In order to get a greater cross section of the community, Gilliam sent out roughly about 300 questionnaires to the people of Mozilla, chosen at random within the local phone book. They even tried How to we
1: choose at random today without a phone book.
0: <laughs> I can't even imagine. Driver's license?
1: Maybe. We, do, Motor you registration? Access to everybody. registration? You'd probably have to find access to have, a of
0: You'd goal. have to get permission. I yeah. don't know. Anyway. They even turned up a man who claimed to be an active practitioner of ritual magic, and he showed Balch and Gilliam a box containing his treasures, potions, blood-stained ropes, daggers. He found a high school student from Hellgate who claimed to have dark magical powers, but used it only as setups to scare girls. But these weren't the source, they didn't come close, and, uh, Hellgate. Listen, I kid you not, Hellgate High School... Pelgate Elementary School. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah,
1: those are common names out west, I think. What they, what they found was actually really quite bizarre. A very distinct pattern began to emerge based on the results they received from their questionnaires and what they were hearing within the conducted interviews. They had a very clear understanding of the origin of the rumors and why they were not going away. Before we get to the origin of the rumors, here are some brief stats as a result of this study. 60% of those surveyed had heard the Donna Pound story and that she was murdered by a cult. Of the 60%, so that's 6-0, 31% believed the rumors and said that they believed the story, and roughly 8% said they didn't believe the rumors. The remaining 21% didn't know what the heck to believe. Professor Balk found himself deep down the rabbit hole of rumor himself to the point where he also began locking his own doors at night. Oh, my God. yeah, nobody locked doors. It seems I lock my doors every night, so stay safe out there. You never know what's going to happen.
0: Common sense. Locking
1: that door might prevent things from happening.
0: Yeah.
1: And while these subgroups of the study were limited to Hellgate, Sentinel, Missoula University, and Missoula as a whole, the rumor was most likely to have started from the place where the most people had heard the rumor. And that place of origin happened to be Wayne's high school, Sentinel High. So does that mean that all these stories could have come from Wayne as the source of fear in Missoula?
0: I think it might very well be. He's the one that's carving pentagrams in his arm.
1: Yeah, he's the one that's going around spreading things about the occult. So you never know. Maybe all these stories got repeated or someone's like, hey, crazy Wayne over here talking about pentagrams, and becoming a high Could you priest, imagine? and a warlock, and all sorts of other things. They mm. so never know. By 1976, the rumors had finally run their course after nearly two years of festering among the community. So this rumor about cult killing of Donna Pounds just spread, but for many throughout the country, this was only just a taste of what was to come.
0: Now, this is going to seem like we're going way off track because I'm going to bring up the topic of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, what would D&D have to do with any of this? Well, bear with me a minute, okay? D&D is a fantasy tabletop role-playing game, an RPG, originally designed by Gary Gygax and David Arneson back in 1974. It was really one of the first role-play games, very different from the traditional war gaming because it allowed players to create their own characters based on traits and abilities. When it first started, it had three character types. Fighting man, magic user, and cleric. And then it expanded to include dwarves, elves, and halflings. Thieves as well. And now a dozen revisions and expansions since then, it's much more complicated with a gazillion different books. Now, the storyteller begins by establishing the setting, and then gives the players a quest or some kind of challenge to accomplish. And there's pitfalls and battles with evil forces along the ways. And the characters collaborate to complete the mission. Now, each character has different abilities, and each player has different personalities, so it's really quite amusing to see how they improvise within the rules, using spells or powers to maneuver through this fantasy realm. And their choices and the consequences shape the outcome of the game. Now, D&D has a board and has figures on it representing the party, the characters. And they declare their actions, roll dice, and determine how many successes they have, whether or not their action happens or doesn't happen, and to what degree or not at all. Now, the storyteller interprets the dice roll and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of fun. It's very creative. And he uh, yeah, and my husband and I might have played this a few million times over the years. And he's usually the storyteller, and we had a game night every Friday night for 20 years or so.
1: Well, thank you for, for telling you about this, but I thought this was important to bring up, as we'll go into in a little bit here. But I had no idea. I mean, my Dungeons and Dragons knowledge only extends to stranger things when they play in the basement. Well,
0: no idea. Role-play well, games are really creative. They're a lot of fun. There's a story that goes around about how I managed to blow up and kill the entire party and end the game. So maybe one of these days I'll tell you that story. <laughs> now, what does this have to do with all of this? Well, unfortunately, at various points in the history of D&D, it has been criticized for its perceived promotion of Satanism, witchcraft, suicide, pornography, and murder. None of that was going on. None of that was going on when we played it. I assure you. I think that those accusations are really out there. I mean, I guess if a Satanist is playing, he can certainly bring Satanism into Mm -hmm. the game. But it's not inherently part of D anD D any more than Christianity or Judaism or any other religion is part of it. Here's an example of why these stories and allegations were made. Back in 1979. About 10 years after the St. Bible was published, and about 5 years after D&D began, a young college student by the name of James Dallas Egbert III went missing from the Michigan State University on August 15th. Now, it was believed that the game D&D caused James to have a psychotic break, and he disappeared into the steam tunnels below the school. Now, having been a child prodigy, He attended college for engineering at the age of 15. Really young. That is really young. And suffered from depression. James had left a suicide note intending to kill himself, but his attempt had failed. And he hid out at a few friends' houses. He made his way down to New Orleans, where he attempted suicide again. He botched that effort as well. He contacted Detective William Deere, who was investigating his disappearance, and he let him in on this whole story. Egbert made dear promise him that he wouldn't reveal the details of what happened since he first disappeared at Michigan State. Uh, Egbert was released to the custody of his uncle, where he would later succeed in killing himself almost a year later with his self inflicted gunshot wound. It's a really sad story. It just, it's heartbreaking. While his death ultimately had nothing to do with Dungeons & Dragons... It didn't keep the fundamentalist Christians from believing that instructions within the game were used to carry out rituals of the occult that drove children to suicide. Yeah. Heavy metal music was also believed to carry subliminal messages when it was played backwards, and you could be heard spewing satanic filth and led to all kinds of behavior that was associated with the troubled youth. I just don't play music backwards. I don't know. Tara, <laughs> do you listen to music
1: backwards? I don't even know how to play music backwards anymore, so... That's, is, <laughs> is that, it that never even possible? To to play it backwards, I don't think that's how you're supposed to listen to it.
0: I'm going to try with Alexa and say, Alexa, play such and such backwards and see what happens. I don't even think that's a thing. <laughs> anyway, heavy metal bands, Judas Priest, were actually taken to court. It was being claimed that two fans committed suicide in 1990. The case alluded to the song Better by you, better than me, which had subliminal messages, do it, embedded in the music. While the musicians were eventually acquitted, heavy metal music will continue to be seen as a tool of the devil.
1: I don't know how do it It just implies, yeah, you should do it and commit suicide. Even if it is a subliminal message, do it can mean
0: a whole lot of things. Subliminal is below your perception, so you don't know it's there. As I talked about previously, you do pick up on and perceive things below your conscious awareness but wouldn't do it mean buy it? Buy it.
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess this sense <laughs> I mean, it's subliminal, and I guess subliminal messages might be subversive. It's up to the listener to interpret what they're what they're picking up on. I don't know. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I just, I know I don't listen to music backwards, so oh, I don't know how yeah. that happens, but
1: okay. Yeah. Sure. Say whatever you want, but yes, yeah, heavy metal music was one of those tools of the devil that, We were seeing and was scaring the crap out of us in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But now, when I think of a satanic panic, it was very amusing to me to find out about like Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal music and how this all kind of played a role. But I usually think about daycares and children telling stories of ritual abuse within those daycares. So as we're talking about like the social upheaval, different uh, roles that women were starting to play. Women could now enter the workforce, and the idea of the nuclear family was falling apart, so strangers were now being paid to take care of people's children. Oh no. (laughs) From Satan's Silence, which is a book, author Debbie Nathan says, To right-wing Christian fundamentalists steeped in lore about devils and stewing with hostility towards public childcare, it was hard not to embrace the notion of Satan infiltrating daycare centers. Book after book was being released on the subject at this point in time, and another memoir released in 1980 called Michelle Remembers detailed one of the authors' childhood of occultic sexual abuse. The subject of the story, Michelle Smith, and co-author Dr. Lawrence Padzer, her psychologist, published the book after he claimed to help her recover memories through the use of hypnosis. They would later go on to be married, which is a whole separate problem for another day. But while many of the claims of Michelle Smith had been disproven, it didn't stop Dr. Padzer from becoming an expert on satanic ritual abuse. Their book would become the outline for law enforcement and legal professionals to follow when a case of ritual abuse emerged. The media also spread misconceptions of the occult around like wildfire. Geraldo Rivera, yes, the man with the mustache, would go on to release a documentary called Devil Worship exposing Satan's underground in 1988 and it became the highest-rated and most-watched television documentary of the time. This documentary was not met with unified approval by NBC, and commercials were sold at 50% discount due to its controversy, as clients did not want to be associated with Satanism. Go figure. The NBC Today Morning News program would not permit Mr. Rivera to appear on the show to promote the documentary because the subject matter was inappropriate to the morning.
0: So you can't talk about Satanism when the sun is shining?
1: No, and you know, just think about all the things that we hear nowadays. I know in Philadelphia, it's always usually a murder to brighten our morning, so you never <laughs> Good know. Good
0: morning, and fifteen <laughs> it people were shot. shot. It must yeah,
1: must <laughs> been a lot more open, and I guess I even know back then
0: protective, but, uh, protective. I guess
1: yes. So let's touch on a few cases from the 1980s and early 90s that left an indelible mark on American society, and by 1980. After Michelle Remembers was published, people were using this book as part of their daycare training in Kern County, Bakersfield, California. Uh-huh. I hope you're rolling your eyes. Oh, yeah. I know why. I like, this is crazy. They're spinning oh, in my sockets,
0: okay? They're spinning.
1: Two young girls who may have been coached by a grandparent who had a possible history of mental illness came forward with a story that was so incredibly bizarre that no one knew what the heck to do about it. They claim to have been hung from hooks in their family's living room, forced to watch ritual baby sacrifices, drink blood, and so much more. Oh, boy. And throughout 1984 to 1986 in Kern County, Bakersfield, 26 people were sent to jail despite lack of physical evidence to back up any of these claims that were brought forward by the children. And nearly all convictions since then have been overturned, but one man, John Stoll, spent nearly 20 years in prison when he was originally sentenced to 40 years. And Scott, and Brenda, and Niffin were each sentenced to 240 years. Oh, my God. But were released after 12 when their own children recanted their testimony, advising that they had been led to make the accusations through leading investigative techniques and the suggestive questioning of therapists.
0: So... Just a question. If they're watching babies being sacrificed, where were the parents of the babies?
1: Exactly. And you'd think, based on reports that you hear throughout the whole entire United States, there would be thousands of missing persons reports if some of these kids were to be believed. I know in listening to one podcast called the Satanic Panic Podcast, they talk about how one girl had said she was part of a satanic ritual killing almost every night for over 365 days where they killed multiple babies. So we're talking thousands just in one alone. One case,
0: like, right. Well, one area. Where,
1: where would all those, where would that all be? And so just think about that. Like one person in one area, multiply that by every single case of child abuse at daycares around the country. We would have so many missing babies.
0: <laughs> it, it just defies any kind of logic. I- it's Absolutely. terrifying. That like we said at the this episode, on.
1: it still doesn't make any sense. No.
0: Like, we are supposed to be driven where the evidence takes us. Like, some evidence, any, any evidence would be nice. All right. So, anyway, in 1983, a parent accused some of the daycare workers at the McMartin preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, of sexually abusing her child.
1: Note how these are all coming in from California, too. It's interesting.
0: Serial killers and abuse in daycare workers by Satanists? Yes. <laughs> no, nah, no correlation or anything. In a series of unfortunate events, the investigation was conducted, for lack of a better term, wrong. Okay, just wrong. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Police officers had no idea of how to handle abuse victims, especially abused children. The law enforcement also brought an unlicensed psychotherapist named Key McFarlane. He and her associates had no psychological or medical training. How do you... (laughs) I'm sorry. And we're still allowed to conduct these investigations into abuse allegations, in which they used anatomically correct dolls. Point to where he touched you and ask... Leading questions. Leading questions. Not tell us what happened, but point to where he touched you. Or statements... That established false memories in most of the children. Out of 400 children who attended daycare, 359 reported that they had been victims of Satanic ritual abuse. And that's a lot. Well, it is a lot.
1: Yes.
0: The accounts and uh, claims of abuse were absolutely bizarre. Ritual slaughter of animals, their teachers could fly, they were flown around the world in hot air balloons. They were flushed down toilets into tunnels underneath the daycare. All kinds of crazy stories. In outlandish claims, children were even reported that Chuck Norris, yes, that Chuck, Mo- the Chuck Norris, that one, was listed as one of the perpetrators of the crime. Remember Dr. Pastor, the co-author of Michelle Remembers, who married his patient? <coughs> He's a consultant on the case because he's considered an expert. The unethical guy who married his patient. Seven staff members at McMartin School were ultimately accused of 321 counts of child abuse.
1: It's crazy. It,
0: it's madness. The charges against those at McMartin School would eventually be dropped after six years of investigation. Key McFarlane was ultimately discredited. Due to the outlandish nature of the claims against those at McMartin's preschool, and many became skeptical of further claims around the country. She didn't even have
1: any accreditation to be doing this in the first place. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that other people became skeptical.
0: Well, I hope so. However, the other providers at preschools and daycares would not end up so lucky, with many remaining imprisoned for unsubstantiated claims. Future cases would be a result of law enforcement struggling to achieve balance between legal rights of children with the legal rights of adults. Quote, believe the children at all costs became the slogan.
1: I know eventually um, McMartin Preschool was actually bulldozed. I don't think they ever reopened after all this. And surprise, there were no tunnels underneath the preschool where kids could have been flushed to.
0: I'm, I'm shocked.
1: And aren't you? <laughs> where where were these kids going on these hot air balloons around the world where they could be picked up after eight hours? I, I,
0: I, Frank and Elena Fuster were a married couple accused of abusing eight children, with 20 children making claims in a Miami babysitting service they ran. Te- oh, we moved to
1: Florida now. Not yeah, in California. Yes. We're,
0: in Florida. No, we're shifting sure. now. <laughs> and a television movie about the case was released in 1990 called unspeakable acts. There were some of the same accusations as other cases. The lack of physical evidence, a lot of children making outrageous claims of satanic ritual and abuse. Ileana was illegal and was more or less coerced to testify against her husband after some quote-unquote memory recovery. She would go on to plead guilty, but remained resolute in the fact that she was innocent. She just really wanted this over with. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison, served three, and was deported. Her husband was sentenced to 165 years minimum. He's still in prison. I mean, we can go on and on and on about these cases.
1: There's so many cases. And one of the most famous cases was that of The West Memphis Three. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you've seen uh, Paradise Lost, which uh, is actually a really good HBO docuseries. There's three parts. I knew a lot about this case, but I'm actually watching this stuff for the first time. Since we're quarantined, I got a 30-day free trial of Amazon Prime, so now I'm just blowing through as much as I possibly can. Three teens in West Memphis, Arkansas, were accused and convicted of Mm -hmm. the sexual assault and murder of three young boys, Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. That took place on May 5th in 1993. Poor little guys. Jesse, Miss Kelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles were the unfortunate young men to fall victim to this climate of fear. And in watching at least the first part of Paradise Lost, you'll hear many people say, well, just look at them. Meaning, look at how they were dressed. They wore all black. They looked goth. They had black painted fingernails. They wore their hair long and black. Or at least Damian Eccles did the other two. Not so much, but Damien was considered the ringleader. And it also didn't help that they were into the occult and heavy metal music, and they definitely all stuck out in a crowd, especially in their Bible Belt conservative town of West Memphis. Satanists they were not, but in the midst of this satanic panic, fear trumped all reason.
0: Well, they sit the
1: bill. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. If you're unfamiliar with the West Memphis Three, again, um, there's a lot of documentaries, things out out there um, to read up on. Um, A more recent equivalent, at least in a part of the story, is that of Making a Murderer that came out on Netflix a, a couple years ago, where Manitoba County law enforcement officials coerced the prime suspect's nephew, Brendan Dassey, into a confession. And Dassey was young, naive, and also mentally incapacitated, which we learned is just like Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., the first boy to um, kind of confess to these murders in West Memphis. And he also claimed that Eccles and Baldwin the culprits. Miss Kelly had an IQ of 72 and was interrogated by police for 12 hours before he finally confessed.
0: Remember, and not- he he's like 16. Yeah. yeah he's, he's not he's an adult. Young, he's a 16-year-old.
1: Uh-huh. He was the youngest out of the three, right? Yeah. And not to mention with the extremely weak evidence they had or lack thereof, the families of the victims and the rest of the town people still believe that the three were responsible for murdering these boys in a satanic sex ritual. And Miss Kelly was sentenced to life, plus 40 years, Baldwin was sentenced to life, and Eccles was sentenced to death.
0: Damien was 18, so he was an adult.
1: Yes. Over the years, the case came under intense scrutiny for how the crime scene was handled, not to mention the coerced confession. Damien Eccles actually gained public support and status due to his intelligence and his outcries against small-town mindset for kids who didn't fit into their standards. And in 2007, new DNA evidence was presented that proved that there was no physical link between the death of the three boys and their convicted murderers. They agreed to a plea deal, a very unusual one, the Alfred plea, in which they were able to maintain their innocence, but had to accept the prosecution's burden of proof and remain guilty. But they were released in 2011.
0: I was really lucky that in uh, 2019, I went to the Death Becomes Us event in New York City, and Damien Eccles was speaking. And he was so eloquent in explaining how his incarceration on death row, expecting to be executed, how it impacted him as a teenager, and then as a young adult in his 20s. He knew he hadn't killed anybody. He knew Mm -hmm. this. And he went back between this deliberate, continued belief that he would prove his case, and then this stagnation that he was stuck living his life in this block without sunlight, without a view, and how the jail impacted his eyesight. And he was fortunate enough to start to correspond with this woman, Lori Davis, who had seen the documentary Paradise Lost. And she was just overcome with compassion. And they start writing back and forth. She was very nervous and thought, you know, what what am I doing here? You know, I live in New York and he's down in Little Rock and in a jail and on death row. And she winds up moving to Little Rock. And they wind up getting married in 1999, and she was his advocate out in the real world who could go to lawyers' offices and could mail packages and and letters for him. And it was a very long, tangled, not obvious at all, legal path. But when that DNA finally proved that there was no physical connection, they accepted that bittersweet Alfred's plea, but they let you out on time served. They put 18 years in, those boys. 18 yeah. years.
1: That's absolutely
0: crazy. Because, because, because they were goths and listened to heavy metal music and fit uh-huh. the bill. Meanwhile, there's a killer out there.
1: Exactly. Obviously, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but if you're interested in this case or you know a little bit about it, definitely go read up, listen. There's a lot of information out there to, to talk about who they think the actual killer might be.
0: Yeah. Definitely look into it. Highly recommend it. Watch the documentaries. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the Department of Justice would go on to dismiss any claim that a powerful, organized satanic ritual abuse cult was operating in the United States by 1992. So, not only was it a belief that children were being sexually abused in satanic rituals or any other type of abuse individually at daycares, but it was the result of a larger satanic cult that was operating. So, just like the government, satanic cult equivalent. Yep. However, even after this, law enforcement would continue to use Satan as a criminal indicator even into the mid-90s and was even incorporated into police training. And while we may think that these outlandish claims and ridiculous training procedures and methods are just that ridiculous and outlandish, the satanic panic was real and it ruined many people's lives. And even in today's society, there's still evidence of an underlying fear that Satan is walking among us in some bizarre... In ritualistic cult that spans the globe, just chaos brimming at that mouth of hell, wherever you think that exists. In the end, the motto from these examples is that children must be believed at all costs. We believe the children. We know that children lie and are supremely suggestive. So what about the well-meaning adults that were caught up in the satanic frenzy? What about their voice? And during times of deep social upheaval bordering on hysteria, the fear is not that a satanic cult is out abusing the children of the world. The real fear is the next one that might be accused would be you.
0: You have to go where the evidence takes you. You have to rely on the evidence. You have to. The evidence typical should go. The evidence, not just hearsay or somebody
1: looks goth, so they must be responsible.
0: Exactly. You no, I mean actual evidence. forensic evidence. Yes. All right, so in 1994, an empirical study was completed by Dr. Gail Goodman of the University of California at Davis, and it found, quote, no substantiated reports of well organized satanic rings of people who sexually abused children. None. This study used information oh, <laughs> I know. Used information from district attorneys, social service workers, police departments, psychotherapists, and concluded that this was all just figments of the imagination. Further, in a survey that was conducted by the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect, the child abuse people wanted to know if this was happening to their population. They found approximately twelve thousand two hundred and sixty-four accusations of group cult sexual abuse related to satanic ritual. However, in a study of more than eleven thousand psychologists, police workers throughout the country, not one investigator had been able to substantiate anything. Nine. Wow! Wow! 12,264 accusations, zero substantiated. Now, Dr. Goodman did find convincing evidence of lone perpetrators. For example, a report from a district attorney in the South where grandparents were accused of molesting their five grandchildren from ages four into adolescence that came to light when the children refused to go visit their grandparents. And the grandparents did have, like, the black robes, the candles, priced on an inverted crucifix, and the children did have chlamydia, a sexually transmitted disease, and they had it in their throats as well. And that was from a report that was in the New York Times. So So not a cult, just sick individuals. Some sick individuals out there, but not any great networked, organized group of Satanists running around the country attacking children. Never happened. So, listen, as we begin to wrap up, we do want to circle back to Wayne Nance. The boy next door, the serial killer who went undetected until he attacked the wrong couple, Chris and Doug Wells were able to stay alive for an hour and a half, ultimately killing the murderer who was trying to kill them. The good guys won. And I want to shout that from the rooftops. Well, in doing some research, we found out that this has happened twice before. From 1970 to 1973, a serial killer named Dean Correll was stalking and killing in Houston, Texas. Hence, these were called the Houston Mass Murders. And it's a very interesting case. We should do a book on this her. Uh,
1: the Candyman. I've heard of him before. When we first started talking about this, and I know you looked up the cases, I was thinking, I've, I've never heard the tables being turned, and this one didn't register even on my radar, even though I know how it turned out.
0: Yep. Yeah. I know he's what we call a team serial killer. He has an accomplice. So it's a really interesting case from that point of view, too. Rare serial killer. Again, team thing. He is the dominant alpha partner. He and his partner would lure the victims, like promising, hey, we're going to have a party. Come on, it'll be fun. They would restrain the victim, who was then usually strangled or shot. His accomplices did change over time. This is a very complicated story. I'm really simplifying it here.
1: He had, like, at least three, right?
0: I think there were three, yeah, at okay. least. There may have been more, but, again, who knows? Cause he- I
1: can't quite remember. We'll yeah. we'll do a book on it, just so that yeah. way we know.
0: Yeah. it's it, Like I said, it's quite a complicated case. But his last accomplice was a guy by the name of Elmer Wayne. I'm sorry. I know we have Wayne Nance, and now we have Elmer Wayne, but his name uh-huh. was Wayne. I'm going to call him Elmer, just to keep things clear. So on August 8th, 1973, Elmer was helping to lure an intended victim by the name of Timothy Kearley to their house where they would drink alcohol and, you know, were partying. So Elmer and Timothy go get sandwiches, and on the way home, they stopped and they picked up another friend, Rhonda Williams, and then returned to the house. Now, Carell is furious with Elmer for bringing a girl back. Because he quote unquote ruined everything. He didn't want a girl in the mix, he was planning on murder.
1: Not like girls. No. I think he was actually a closeted homosexual too. Oh yeah, the, the girl girls was... were when
0: in the party. Oh yeah, she was definitely gonna ruin things. But Elmer managed to defuse the situation and the group kept drinking and eventually they all pass out full asleep. Now sometime later Elmer wakes up with Corel snapping on handcuffs and duct taping his mouth. No, this, not not <laughs> yes, this is not good. This is not good. He looks, and Tim and Ronda are also tied up, and Tim is naked. Elmer is trying to talk, so Coral removes the gag, and he's like, what the hell? What are you doing? And Coral says he's angry. You brought it. Roll back. I'm going to kill all three of you. I'm going to torture Tim. Now, Elmer's a good talker, so he manages to convince Coral that, wait, wait, I want to help you. I want to murder these guys. I want to torture them, too. You know, and Coral finally is convinced. And he unties Elmer, gives him a knife, and tells him to go cut Rhonda's clothes off. Now, by this time, Tim and Rhonda are awake, and they're trying to shout and protest. And what Elmer does is he grabs Carell's pistol, telling him, No, no, you've gone far enough. And Carell says, You won't do it. And he lunges at Elmer, who shoots at Carell five times, killing him. He saves Tim and Rhonda's life. Ultimately, though, he was an accomplice in the other murders that had taken place. He is sentenced to 99 years for being Karel's accomplice in at least six murders.
1: And but fun fact, the guys in Mindhunter, if you enjoy that show on Netflix, actually interview Elmer. Yes, they do. About Dean.
0: Yes. Now, the other case where a victim killed the serial killer was more recent. In 2015, in Chillicothe, Ohio. Ohioans? Ohh, I know, I know we have a few listeners
1: there. I yeah. think that's yeah. right, unless it's just Chillicothe, but I don't know. I'm um. not
0: sure. Again, I'm sorry. <laughs> Women had been disappearing, and the police thought that mm, we probably have a serial killer on the loose. And this was actually confirmed on July 18th, 2015, when Heather, a sex worker, was contacted on Backpage for a liaison. And when she showed up for the date, a man by the name of Dean Falls was standing at the door with a gun pointing at her. I said, live or die, which was a reference to the film Saw, if you've ever seen that.
1: Let, let, me, let me get this straight. Wayne Nance. Yep. Alvar Wayne. Yep. Dean Coral, Yep. Dean Falls.
0: Yep. Okay, yep. got it. All connected? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All we need is a Falls with Nance, and we've gone full cycle. <laughs> I know. Well, Heather chooses live and starts to struggle with Falls, got the gun, and shoots him fatally. Good. Way to go, girl.
1: Which I don't think anyone would have chosen die, but, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. When the police arrive, they find a list with ten women's names on it and his hit kit, which contained handcuffs, knife, axes, sledgehammer, bulletproof vest, another gun, shovels, bleach, and cleaning supplies. Yeah,
1: I have to look into this one. It's interesting to uh-huh. me that were they all sex workers that were disappearing? Because no- he had a list.
0: Not all of them. But he okay. was definitely had a list and was checking it twice.
1: Okay, so I know normally <laughs> you might not keep a list of names of their prostitutes unless he had like a list of ones that he patronized. So I don't
0: know. Well, curious. Women stop disappearing. Now there was a series on the ID channel called "The Vanishing Women" that were about the women who were disappearing. Very disturbing. Really well done. So I highly recommend that to you. But way, way too many, too young gone, too many families fractured, grief stricken. So I'm really glad Heather got this guy.
1: I'll definitely have to check that out. Yes. But the message of these two stories is yes, it is possible to turn the tables if you find in yourself, if you find yourself in a situation such as this. I I hope that you don't. We both hope that yeah. you don't. But trust your damn gut so that we don't have to talk to you about you in this podcast. Mm-hmm. We definitely don't want any of our murder bookies showing up on here.
0: No, definitely not.
1: <laughs> but this concludes Second Cast, or Alexa called it Tooncast. It's <laughs> the second cast, again, where we just dive into some of those other things that we found interesting in the story. So thank you for joining us in our discussion of our Jane Doe's and Satanic Panic and people who turn the tables on serial killers. Uh, don't forget start reading The Phantom Prince My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. This is just a different story of Ted, the one told through Liz's eyes as she lived out a romance with a man she thought she knew but could barely imagine. And it's a really touching, heart-wrenching memoir detailing two women's daily lives with a serial killer. It's a story of love and pain, tragedy and horror. And look for falling for a killer on Amazon Prime or you watch it if you haven't watched it already and then extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile on netflix is also another supplemental material that was mostly based on the phantom prince so please reach out to us on instagram facebook or twitter shoot us an email if you'd like if you're just tuning in for the first time we'd still love to hear your thoughts on any of the series that we've done especially those lizzie theories Mm -hmm. we love kind of learning everyone else's thoughts on who might have done it Send those to us at Jill and Tara at murdershelfbookclub.com Club dot com or leave us a note on Facebook, Instagram, wherever. Uh, we'd definitely be happy to hear from you and, and incorporate those again into our episodes. So follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podme. And when you subscribe, our episodes go directly to your feed so you don't miss a thing. And if you have the opportunity, especially on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five star review. Every little thing you do helps us to get better.
0: Until next time, murder bookies. Happy reading. Stay safe. Toodaloo. All right. All Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved.